In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These words are from the book of Revelation and its description of the end times. In the Bible, when Jesus speaks of the end times, he speaks of separation, of two standing in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. He says not to pay attention to the television preachers who believe they know when it will happen. About that day and hour, no one knows, he says, not even him. Expect the unexpected. Like a thief in the night, the Son of Man will come. So be ready wakeful. What are we to make of such apocalyptic promises and warnings? In part, we know they're true. We know that each of us will die and that death may arrive like a thief at an unexpected hour. One is taken and one is left. Any good lawyer will tell us all the ways that we need to be prepared for that. We also know by science that the sun and the earth are perishable and the universe itself won't last forever. Science is full of apocalyptic warnings without promises. The Bible folds its warnings within promises. It paints a vivid picture both the warnings, the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. With me sleep deprived, that sounds like an alien invasion. The promises are also vivid. And the sea and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged according to their works. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And God shall wipe away all tears. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor pain. For the former things are passed away. Marcus Borg, the late influential biblical scholar, advises us to take the Bible seriously, not literally. If he would have said, we should always take the Bible seriously, though not always literally, then I could agree. Sometimes seriousness requires the literal interpretation. Jesus' death on a cross is an obvious example. His resurrection is another. What about the second coming? Should we take that literally? Richard Hooker, the great Elizabethan theologian, advised that taking Scripture seriously means reading it in faith with reason. At points, the Bible's interpretation is uncertain, according to Hooker. At these points, reason looks for guidance from elsewhere in the Bible where the meaning is more clear. 
light a candle from the campfire at the center, and take it with you to see a little better in the woods. That's Hooker's theory of biblical interpretation. The Bible opens with the story of the world's creation in the book of Genesis. It closes with the book of Revelation's promise of a second coming. The second coming is the woods. The interpretation is uncertain. Time was, that was also true for the book of Genesis. St. Augustine himself wasn't sure how literally to take it. He could entertain several faithful interpretations of creation, both literal and not, including one that resembles evolution. Wisely, Augustine cautioned readers not to stake our faith on only one interpretation. In Galileo's conflict with the Pope, Galileo took his stand on Augustine. Since Galileo, we turn to science, not to Scripture, for a literal description of the world's beginning. So, has science replaced the book of Genesis? It has not, because the process science describes doesn't touch the deeper meaning of the word creation. To make that point, I often draw an analogy to novels. Here I've used Faulkner, Mark Twain, and J.K. Rowling. Today I'll use Tom Wolfe, who died last year, and his novel about college life titled, I Am Charlotte Simmons. I read it the year our daughter went off to college, and the picture it painted of college life was not reassuring to a dad. Charlotte Simmons is beautiful and brilliant, the pride of her dirt-poor Appalachian mountain family. I think that a teenage Jennifer Lawrence would have played her in a movie. Charlotte arrives as a freshman at DuPont University, a fictional elite Northeastern school with Harvard's academic standing, Princeton's student social profile, and basketball success resembling Duke's. DuPont University is meant to represent the cream of American college education. Charlotte's mother is a loving but uncompromising hard-shell country Christian, Puritan, not Episcopalian. After moving Charlotte in, she leaves her with a warning and reminds her who and what she is. There's going to be folks here wanting you to do things you don't hold with. So you just remember you come from mountain folks. We know how to be real stubborn. Can't nobody make us do a thing once we get hard set against it. And if anybody don't like that, you don't have to explain a thing to them. All you got to say is, I'm Charlotte Simmons, and I don't hold with things like that. And they'll respect you. Unfortunately, they don't. In Scripture, we find whole lists of things that Charlotte doesn't hold with and finds rampant at DuPont. Reveling in drunkenness, debauchery, licentiousness, quarreling, and jealousy. Stubbornly, she resists. I am Charlotte Simmons, she remembers. But resistance doesn't get respect, and she is miserable and lonely. 
People need people, my father loved to say, quoting the corny song. And people who have people are the luckiest people in the world. Charlotte needs friends and appreciation. We all need that. The problem is the people from whom she needs it are beautiful, but sour, and too shallow to appreciate a mountain girl who marches to a different drummer. What the men and women of DuPont appreciate in Charlotte is her beauty. The women jealously respect it. The men are drawn like moths to flame. One day, Charlotte takes the apple. Afterwards, Eve-like, she avoids her perceptive mother and tries to hide her shame. As the story closes, Charlotte Simmons is the toast of campus and in terrible pain. Now to the analogy. Let's place ourselves between the covers in the novel, I Am Charlotte Simmons. We are characters in the story. Suppose that we are friends of Charlotte. One morning over coffee, we ask her, so how did you get here? Thinking back, Charlotte tells us how her parents met and fell in love and of their marriage and their daughter and how they raised her up. We ask for more. She tells us where her people came from, going back to Europe, why they left there, and how they found their way to Appalachia. We ask for more. Drawing from biology, she takes the story back through evolution to the origin of species and speculation about the dawn of life. That would be a literal and accurate description of how Charlotte got here from within the novel. Now, we're back outside the book, living where we do. And living as we do beyond that story, we know there is another truth about the genesis of Charlotte Simmons that does not unfold within the pages of the novel. It is the story of the book as such, about who wrote it and with what purposes in mind. Charlotte doesn't know this other story. She doesn't see Tom Wolfe in whom she lives and moves and has her being. Within this realm that we inhabit, the Bible is the story of our author in whom we live and move and have our being. Unlike Tom Wolfe, and by our author's own choice, he appears within our story, though he lives beyond it. And speaking of the author and the world beyond the book, the story cannot be a literal description. Words, concepts, and events from within the covers are stretched to speak about this all-encompassing reality. That is why there is no conflict between creation as depicted in the book of Genesis and the science of evolution. Karl Barth said it in a letter to his niece. One can as little compare the biblical creation story in a scientific theory like that of evolution as one can compare, shall we say, an organ and a vacuum cleaner. The creation story is a witness to the beginning or becoming of all reality distinct from God 
in the light of God's later acts and words relating to his people Israel. Those acts and words at the campfire. Naturally, Bart says, in the form of a saga or a poem. The theory of evolution is an attempt to explain the same reality in its inner nexus, in the form of a scientific hypothesis, naturally. End quote. What is true of the Old Testament's description of the world's beginning is also true of the New Testament's description of its end. The form is poetic, symbolic. Words, concepts, and events are stretched to speak of truths beyond the reach of our imagination. And the basis is God's acts and words relating to his people Israel at the center of which we find the story of his son, the story in which the meaning from beyond the covers is disclosed within. So we don't know when or where or how our story ends. We know that when it ends, our lives aren't over. We know there is another story that opens on that world beyond these pages, a world that even here we've had a glimpse and taste of, and that we know as fascinating, beautiful, and good.